especially on the cross country, some of the jumps are massive jumps and uh, require you know total belief in what the rider is asking them to do. And uh, so it is, it's a pretty cool sport. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello, fans of Shuklistan, and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for fans of the Olympics and Paralympics. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you? I'm a little overwhelmed. It's been a week. It has been a week. Oh, my goodness. So, uh, we'll get into it in a minute, but it has definitely been a week for news about the Olympics and Paralympics. But first, we would like to give a special shout out to our patrons. Your next bonus mini episode will celebrate Mascot Madness. You can become a patron of the show at the bronze, silver, and gold medal levels. And there's also a very special Shuklistan committee member level. Benefits include a bonus mini episode every month, submitting Ask Me Anything questions to the show, even commissioning the main segment of a future episode. Make your Shuklistani citizenship official at patreon.com slash flamealivepod. And just as a quick teaser, if you think your NCAA brackets got busted, you will feel so much better when you hear what happens to me. <laughs> it, was, our it was, it was brackets. pretty epic. I have to say, I was very surprised, but uh, it's going to be a great competition. We are looking forward to it. All right. We are kicking things off with Tokyo 2020 news because we got the word. No overseas fans at this year's Olympics, which is a bummer. You know, I went to bed very, very late on Friday. And before I went to bed, I checked the news. I was looking at Kyoto News and they said no overseas volunteers would be let in. But they didn't have the word yet. And like, oh, if they're not going to let in volunteers, they're definitely not letting in people who have nothing to offer but their cheering and their wallets, (laughs) you know. To be fair, that that's quite an offering. Yeah, well, that's true. That's true. But, but uh, yeah, it's it's not surprising, and yet to hear it officially is a whole other level. Exactly. So to get some perspective on this, we talked with our Shuk Flastani, Ken Hanscom. Ken is the COO of Ticket Manager and a trustee of the USOPC Foundation. He has been our go-to for Olympics travel, so we touched base with him when we heard the news about Tokyo. Take a listen. Tokyo, no overseas. Were you surprised? I was not surprised. You know, when we first heard about the cancellations back in February and immediately someone came out and said, no, no, that's absolutely not true. We're still having it. And when this was kind of floated out in the media and I think Kyoto uh, news about two and a half weeks ago, and there was not quite the same level of uh, people refuting that it would, would uh, was going to happen. Uh, I think from my perspective, it was kind of a foregone conclusion that that would be uh, the ultimate result. And specifically with the timing with the, you know, the torch relay starting this Thursday. And I think, you know, some of those decisions, you know, needed to, you know, one, I think it was a desire to have a lot of those decisions made before 
that particular relay started, which I think put the time pressure on in terms of that. So no, I, I, was, I was, it was largely when I went to bed on, on Friday night um, after hearing um, that they were going to be talking about, I expected to wake up to, to the news. And although many people still held out quite a bit of, you know, some hope, you know, when I woke up in the morning, I was not surprised in, in, in any way. Well, it's a bummer. One of the, the big news was that they're still going to allow some foreign volunteers yeah, I think that came out on either late Saturday or early Sunday that, in effect, ones that have very specialized skill sets and, you know, maybe think about certain languages or whatnot. I don't want to speculate what that would be, but if some languages are not um, as readily available for, from translation purposes in Japan, you you could see why, you know, in order in terms of execution of the games and making sure that, you know, athletes and others have, you know, can be comfortable you know, despite the circumstances, you can you can see why some of those accommodations would be made to, to serve the athletes. So for people who were hoping to go, yeah. now what happens for them? Let's start with tickets first. Yeah, I mean, we don't know yet. I, I think, you know, I, I could speculate on what the process would be based on what happened last summer. But, you know, we just have the information. I think the authorized ticket resellers are just starting to get some of the information. And then I expect over the coming days uh, that we'll get some more specific details coming out of uh, a combination of Tokyo uh, as well as from the authorized ticket resellers on on what the process could and, and would be. I mean, I know in in some of the groups I'm in, people are asking, well, if I have friends in uh, Tokyo, can I just give them my tickets? Can, so there's probably a lot of things being considered, and I don't want to speculate what the, what what those specific items are. The simple thing is is we don't know, but the fact that they've said that you know people you know that the tickets will will be refunded. So who's making that ultimate decision? Is that coming from the organizing committee or the individual sellers? You know, I think ultimately it's a very complex situation that goes back to 2013 and there's differences between tickets and hotels and hospitality and whatnot. I think ultimately it's going to be a combination of, of the five parties that made the original decision, right? Uh, Tokyo Metro, Japanese government, Tokyo, you know, TOKOG. IOC and IPC, because also you have, you know, it's not just Olympic ticket sales, you also have the Paralympic ticket sales uh, that have to be considered. So, so I think ultimately a lot of the decisions are going to start from there. And of course, you know, the authorized resellers are, are extensions of their national Olympic committees that, you know, each of them has a contract with a combination of Tokyo 2020 and that. So, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's going to be a partnership between all parties involved to do the right thing. Just, I, I think, some people might be thinking immediately, well, I, I want my stuff back now, but we should, we should really talk about months and months of waiting. Maybe. I mean, that, that's, that's, that's speculation, you know, and again, I've, I've, I've seen and talked with people that say, Hey, yes, you know, I want my, my money back tomorrow, which I, I, I do understand that, you know, we also went through all of this last summer with concerts, with sports, with theater events. And so now this is at least here, the United States and Europe and other places, there's kind of an expected kind of process that, that you go through. And so whether it's going to be, you know, I, I guess I don't expect today to get it back in you know, two weeks, but whether that's 36, I think we still need to wait for more information to come out. I know some of the ATRs did publish guidance even before the announcement was made around timing. And I think, you know, ultimately it depends on what the, you know, four to five, to, you know, the different parties work together in terms of finding that solution is. So I wouldn't say, hey, it's definitely going to be, I think one of the, one of the letters said 60 to 90 days after the event. Uh, and other people have said, hey, it needs to happen much sooner. 
I think, you know, we'll find it'll be somewhere in between, but I don't, I don't think we know yet what that's going to be. Cause again, just like with everything else, the authorized resellers buy the tickets in advance from the Tokyo Olympic committee. Right. And so that money, that money needs to flow back in order to, to, you know, for those things to happen. And they have not announced yet what the domestic audiences, num- those numbers will be for each event. Yeah, they, they will be, uh, you know, and that being said, you know, if you can look and look at tea leaves out there, right. For example, there's, there's event, there's two wrestling events that are going to be at Yokohama stadium in May that are already 50, uh, 50% plus capacity for those. So they're going to have 34,000 spectators there. And, and so I think, you know, guidance wise, I think people are expecting what I would just personally expect it from experience is, you know, at least 50%. Uh, and maybe it goes higher depending on, you know, what the virus does and what the state of things are in Japan uh, over the subsequent, you know, two months be- before they begin. And of course, you know, of course, first and foremost, right, you have to look at the protection of the athletes so they can have, be successful in competitions without being disrupted, uh, as well as all the supporting staff, the trainers, the coaches, the people that are making sure that that the athletes are having a safe time. So I think it's going to be guided by, by both of those items. And again, I think most of us don't, I mean, in the U.S., I think we feel a lot differently. That's been one of the most interesting things for me is uh, reading a lot of the comments and conversations and even messages I directly get. In the U.S., I would say people are probably the most surprised, shocked. And I think part of that is is because of we've seen what President Biden ha- has done and in terms of the rate and acceleration of, of vaccination that we've seen here in the United States. And most of us looking and say, hey, if I want to be vaccinated, I can be vaccinated before the end of June. But that's not in a lot of other countries. And when you think about something like the Olympics, it's 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 not about the U.S. I mean, we oftentimes, I mean, I do wear Team USA stuff all the time. And for me, it's obviously about supporting the, the Team USA Olympic athletes. Uh, but in other places, it's not. People in Australia are like, oh, yeah, this was totally a foregone conclusion. How how could it? Other people are like, how could have they accepted international spectators? Places like Australia and New Zealand, where in some case, you know, some cases, they're not even able to leave the country right now. In terms of the, the restrictions that they have there now, things might be you know less cases of the vi- you know of coronavirus than we see here, but still, but still, even in those cases, they have much more severe restrictions than, than we may be experiencing right now. And so, so for some of them, there's like, yeah, I have to, I had no expectation that there was any case where this was possible. So, what are we hearing at this point about Beijing and tickets for next? I mean, that's now yeah, less than a year away, and in normal circumstances, tickets would be on sale. Yeah, you know, I, I, this is another one of those areas where you get, get speculation. I don't know the time frame in terms of, of when they're planning to do that. And there's probably a number, uh, number of things that are in play. One is what is the situation in China? But the other is, is, you know, how careful do you have to be with a summer games coming, the promotion, all the excitement around that, not taking away from that. And at the same time, making sure that, you know, you are moving forward in terms of what's going to happen with Beijing. So I, I don't know. I don't have any particular uh, notes. I mean, even the group of people that are kind of organizing around Beijing is, is a lot smaller right now uh, than even Pyeongchang, uh, you know, Pyeongchang was. And I think there's a number of different reasons for that. Like a, a lot of people made plans for Tokyo before we even knew what COVID-19 was. And so I think some people who are now are thinking that advance, they're just thinking about, hey, can I go somewhere, at least in the US, can we go somewhere this week, that this, you know, this month? this quarter, this next six months. And so I think as we get closer, I think as we get to summer, I think we'll have a little bit better sense of where things are, but there's no official announcements or on sale dates or anything at, the, at those points in time. And I think from my, my, my look around the 
the hotels themselves, like even in, in greater Beijing, it's, you know, they're, they're not cheap, right? They're, they're four or $500 a night, uh, maybe $600 a night for really, you know, for a pretty, you know, four or five star hotel. So there is some level of availability for me. I think Beijing is, is, is pretty attractive because you can stay in the city uh, of Beijing uh, where you don't have really, let's call it a, a lack of accommodation. Maybe we've seen in, in the last couple uh, of Winter Olympics, and you can commute up to the mountain while also having things there, you know, like like you know, figure skating and hockey and those things that are going to be down in the city. So to me, it's it's really it's really interesting for, from an experience standpoint. Where I think it was kind of difficult to get from Seoul out to you know to Pyeongchang, like even and do a day trip. It seems like it could be easier um, with the way the rails and the situations are going to be set up in Beijing if we get to that point. I just, I'm so sad. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't, I, I wasn't even going, and I'm sad. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really. Sad. I mean, I'm I'm completely sad. But I mean, when I think about it, what I'm most sad is for the athletes, and they're not going to be able to have their families. They're not going to be able to have their loved ones. You know, the, the, those are the first and foremost things that I kind of think about. Is like, what is the impact on, on athletes and They've been through a lot the last year, right? First, all getting geared up, right? It was this time last year. They're all getting geared. Like if you look at their training plans, just the peak in time for uh, a lot of the qualification events and then there. And now they're looking at doing that again after having a lot of isolation the past year and looking at the prospect of actually now going to Tokyo, to being in a potential isolation, of course, with with their other, but not with their families and friends and them cheering in, in stands. And that's the other thing I think about is effectively – Every single event is going to be an away game for non-Japan athletes. And so the hope is that they can leverage that for motivation, right? Because you can think about certain events and certain moments there where it could be the Team USA soccer team versus Japan in the final. And the stadium's full of Japanese fans with, with very few, if any, American fans able to support them. You can think about the women's tennis finals with uh, Naomi Osaka, right? And specifically, what that would be like, and you can so you can kind of walk through all those. The you know the men's baseball final at Yokohama Stadium, Japan, obviously is is favored to make it there. Team USA hasn't even made it, and I'm putting these all in U.S. context. But each event, each athlete from from somewhere else is potentially you know looking at at, at facing that even at a 50 or 25 percent you know capacity with it with it being being local. So I really my heart and I as I think about things is what you know what I think about more than anything is the athletes more than anyone. Again, I'm disappointed. I'm you know looking forward to going. Of course, we'll be going to Beijing and well, assuming, you know, assuming we'll be to Beijing and Paris and beyond. But I think about I think about the athletes. I think about their families. I think about the parents of athletes. Um, that's probably who I've gotten the most, you know, contact from. The other thing is, you know, there, there's people that don't go to every Olympics like I do. Uh, one one person wrote, reached out to me on social media and just said, "Hey, can I? You know, it's been really helpful helping me prepare over the last couple of years. I want you to know my story." And the story was this: is he'd always, uh, when he was a kid, he had had a dream about going eighth Olympics and B to Tokyo. And from the day that Tokyo was announced in 2013, saved twenty five dollars a week to put aside so that when Tokyo 2020 would get here, that he would have the means to go to participate to tour Tokyo and Japan as well as see the Olympic Games. And that kind of stuff is, is, real, is, is really, really heartbreaking about the sacrifice and the planning that a lot of people put in place 
uh, for once in a, you know what they perceive as a once time once in a lifetime moment. I hope they're like me and they would go once and say, you know, I've got to do more of that, right? I've got I really need I really want to do more of that and participate in that. But th- those are those are the things that that I really I think just really get to me in terms terms of my heart and what I'm thinking. And again. I'm not. I don't second guess the Japanese government or or the decisions here. Like I'm not an epidemiologist. I I have no idea what state of the world is going to be like in June or July. Yeah, my world of worlds. Would I like there to be a vaccination passport where I'm green or red or even even if it's very restrictive? Would I love to do that? Same time, how do you let a million people into a country? Which was the, the, the you know the impacted people at this point where we know things. And there's other things I could speculate on in terms of my experience with operating. Uh, large events and being part of those for the last 15 years about timeframes for decisions. But I don't think anyone right now can, can, can really look at it. So I, guess, I think people are going to get to June or July and things are either going to be better than expected or possibly worse than expected. And we're going to see it in, in the media. Oh, did Japan make the decision too soon? And then, you know, hindsight's 2020. But when we stand here looking at things now, and I think the level of concern there in Japan, I mean, I, I don't know what other option was really there. So I, I think you kind of have to be supported as disappointed, you know, as I am. I was looking for, you know, looking forward to being in Japan for a month come come mid-July all, all the way through August. Yeah, it's, it's sad. It is, but I, th- I think that what we have to look at is how can we best support the athletes going there? And that that's what, what I am concerned about the most, about finding ways to do that. And when, you know, when they're also there in the ground and they have the moments. And I know that, you know, one of the reasons, reasons my wife and I, we support the USOPC the, the way we do is that they just have a fantastic system and tools and trainers and others to help people visualize and think through these situations. So with, when they get there, they'll be prepared. And I know that all the work that happens there is going to help prepare them for that. But it's just going to be, you know, that much more motivation they're going to need to, you know, need to figure out in a lot of these cases where, away from home, away from family, and then even in the events um, where you're used to seeing maybe a multinational crowd, depending on who you're facing in a given event or a given session or whatever, you may, you know, ha- have, you know, it's going to be an away game. It just, it just effectively is going to be a away game. Have you heard anything through the USOPC of things that they might do to try to make it more special for the athletes if their families can't come? Yeah, so I, I don't have any specific details in terms of that. I just know that, you know, well, so my, I'm going to say specifically my personal concern is, is finding ways that um, we can either help or, or whether it ends up being messages or encouragement or any of those kinds of things to do, to do that. And I'm sure the USOPC is going to you know, continue to do everything. You know, Sarah, Sarah had a great, you know, I think a letter over the weekend in terms of, of the announcement, in terms of that, that focus and support that, that, that we need to have for the athletes. I'm sure we're going to see a lot of creative, both opportunities and ways to to encourage our athletes. I mean, our the USOPC has been just been fantastic about that. Uh, the various IFs, you know, over the past, and and I think as we move into, right, we also have a lot of qualifying coming up. You know, there's qualifications. Uh, they just started again for soccer, uh, baseball tournaments in July. You know, the men the men had a great victory over Costa Rica for I think four to one, four to zero last week. To just you know, because they haven't qualified yet. We have the gymnastics, we have swimming, we have all that stuff coming up in the next couple months. And I'm sure there's going to be some very unique opportunities to support them one way or another, whether it's financially, emotionally, um, and, so, and some of the other ways that I'm sure that everyone will come up to do that. I'm sure sponsors are also going to be looking for ways to also to, to help out too. So, How are you guys feeling about about? I mean, were you guys surprised? Surprised? No. 
Yeah. At this point, disappointed. And now it's like, well, don't know what's going to happen. I want those tickets. I want the ticket money back, of course, at some point. Yeah. But we all do. I, I feel worse for the families. And it would be nice, like, if, you know, you kind of hope that, oh, maybe June is better and there's a better climate. And they go, okay, we can let families in and put you on a list or something. But I don't know. <sighs> Hang in there, Ken. It's probably going yeah, no, to be a crazy I mean, couple I, weeks. It is. I mean, it's, it's going to be a crazy, crazy few months. And, you know, I think start looking forward towards Beijing. We'll start forward toward, towards Paris. And, you know, we'll, we'll see We'll see also what happens with, with Tokyo and all, all, you know, all the athletes. And obviously saying that them our, our love and our well wishes so that they can continue kind of training and, you know, looking forward to, you know, getting over there to Tokyo and having a very, very successful summer games for Team USA. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ken. So, yeah, no fans from outside of Japan. There were about a million tickets sold to overseas fans. But that doesn't necessarily mean a million fans were planning to come in because we had right, a Because you yourself had, you know... About a half a million tickets. At least 10,000 of those. <laughs> but... Toshiro Muto, the chief executive of Tokyo 2020, has promised that ticket holders would receive refunds. But the big concern for ATRs, as uh, Inside the Games reported, that uh, most of those tickets that they sell come through packages. And Tokyo 2020 is currently claiming that only 30% of total hotel room nights can be released free of charge. And the hotels are already saying they don't have any intention of returning money that was paid in advance, which all of these packages are paid in advance. And other hotels are offering to make just partial refunds. So then that means that the authorized ticket resellers could get millions of dollars in compensation claims and they are fearing bankruptcy. It's going to be be months to get this all sorted out. I mean, the straight tickets. You know, if you just have tickets, mm-hmm. was there fees and things associated with buying the tickets, of though? Of course, that's so, how they... You so, know, so are those going to be refunded? I doubt it. I I, right. I highly doubt because they have to get some of their money back somehow, and they've spent the time and the technology to get the money transferred over to Tokyo 2020, so there's money to be spent for that technology that they have in place for that. And yeah, this is a, this is going to be a long time getting sorted mm-hmm, out. Mm-hmm. So you may get your straight ticket refund. Right. Or they may even take a percentage off of that. I would not be surprised if they took a little bit off the top for the work that they have to do in the background. But it's it's tough. It's, uh, you know, just but getting money back is pretty important for it's, most people. It's Yeah, just kind of even though we've gotten the official word, this is hardly sorted out. Right. So if you've got tickets, let us know when you get word of what's happening with your ticket refund or when you get money back, because we'd like to know how long it actually takes different people. And I, I wonder if people who get packages are first in line to get their refunds or last in line because they have to sort out all of the hotel stuff, too. So it, it'll be interesting to see how that how that happens. And when you bought your tickets, does that matter for when you get your refund? Like I bought tickets in several different stages. Will I get refunded as one whole customer or will I get refunded as here is the first wave, second wave, third wave? So it'll be interesting. We'll keep an eye. Exactly. And we talked a little bit with Ken about doing some or 
national Olympic committees maybe developing different ways to cheer on fans from abroad. Well, uh, one of the New Zealand team sponsors, ANZ Bank, has apparently developed a wrist, a Bluetooth wristband, which will allow fans to send a pulse of support to athletes at Tokyo 2020. And that's supposed to be given to athletes ahead of the games. And this is from inside the games as well. Fans will be able to tap the device or tap their, they'll have it, it connected to the New Zealand team app. And then if it's war- if the band is worn by an athlete, they'll get a vibration. But and it'll all <laughs> I know. <laughs> and it'll this does also- not sound. Sa- I mean, in theory, <laughs> this sounds like a nice idea, but in practice, I this this could end really poorly. Right. Well, there's also going to be a counter on it so that they see how many taps of support they receive. So my guess is also that they could take the watch off and check it from time to time when they're feeling a little down and be like, oh, look at all the, all the support we're getting. But yeah, if you're it's wearing like, it all oh, the time. Why is that guy's arm shaking all the time? Oh, it's fine. He's just a Kiwi. It, we're good. Don't worry. You know, the, these people walking around with their silver fern sweat jackets and their arms will just be twitching randomly. <laughs> Oh, don't stand too close to the Kiwi. You might get a punch. He's getting a vibration from a fan. So we will have more news from Tokyo, including another unbelievably insensitive gaffe later on in the show. Next, we're going to get to this week's interview because we did talk to an athlete this week, too. This week, we are talking with Philip Dutton, who is an equestrian who's competed in six Olympics in the uh, discipline of eventing. You may remember our Atlanta 1996 story from earlier this year about the Australian eventing team. Well, that was Philip's first Olympics. He competed for Australia also in 2000 and 2004. Then he switched to competing for the U.S. in 2008, 2012, and 2016. We talked with him about how eventing works. Take a listen. Eventing is like the triathlon for equestrian. Can you give us a quick rundown of the three of disciplines in the events and kind of the goals and purposes of each one? Sure. Well, certainly it, it is a the horse is a true athlete and um, sort of a a, a horse that's uh, very uh, capable of being a all-round horse or you know in human terms an all-round athlete. And um, so the first phase that we have to do is or that's that's part of the sport, it always starts off with the dressage phase. And this dressage is kind of the suppleness, the, uh, you know, the movement of the horse, the horse's understanding of the rider and the aids that he's been given to do. And so you do a dressage test, which is everybody does the same movements and the same formations, kind of like you would do on, you know, gymnastics um, uh, program or whatever and so you go through these movements and then you're judged on that and the horse's obedience to the rider and his suppleness and the way that he does the movements and so you're given a score there and then from that day and then the next phase is uh, what is called the endurance phase or the cross-country phase and that's completely different to that so this is you know, at the maximum level is over four miles and fixed obstacles. Um, so you have, you know, different stuff that you would encounter and out in the field. So you have uh, water jumps, you have jumps over ditches, uh, you have narrow fences, you have big wide fences. Um, so, again, a test of, you know, the horse's uh, bravery and his uh, trust in the rider and, you know, 
the ability to go fast and to jump these jumps at speed. And from that, you can get penalized. Obviously, there's a certain speed you have to do it at. And also then if you have a refusal, as in the horse says, no, I can't do that, well, then you get a, get penalized for that. And obviously, if the rider falls off, <laughs> well, then you're penalized for that as well. So that score is then added to your the score that you got in the dressage. Now, if you did, did incur penalties on the cross-country, and then the third phase or the final phase is the show jumping phase. Um, and then after the cross country, obviously the horses have to pass a veterinary examination as well to make sure they're fit to, to carry on, which, you know, in most cases they are. And that's a show jumping phase, uh, which is, you know, a certain amount of jumps in the arena. And uh, the horse has to come back from being, you know, really big and brave and, tenacious the day before on the cross country and to jump these jumps carefully and these ones knock down and so uh, you need a horse that sort of is going to come back to you and be able to you know jump carefully and methodically the next day after you know racing over the jumps the day before and so you know penalties there obviously knockdown of the fences or again disobedience of horse not jumping and so then the the winner or the the scoreboard then is the, obviously the lowest score is the, the leading score after those three days. And so it's not um, certainly not the easiest sport to follow, uh, especially for a non-equestrian, but, uh, you know, it is really exciting and it is pretty amazing the horses that are able to handle each phase so well and, you know, especially on the cross country, some of the jumps are massive jumps and uh, require, you know, total belief in, what the rider is asking them to do. And uh, so it is, it's a pretty cool sport. My immediate reaction is how can one horse be good at all three things? Because, it, <laughs> because it not only personality wise, but just physically. Yeah. So, I mean, and, and the thing is that there's all different levels, you know, so at the, at the, uh, at the introductory level, the, the dressage test is very basic. The cross-country jumps are just little logs in the ground and trotting through water obstacle and stuff like that, and the show jumping is quite small. Obviously, the Olympic Games or the five-star level, uh, we have one five-star here, or there's going to be two now. Uh, up until this year, there's only been one five-star in this country, and that's the Land Rover Kentucky five-star. Um, and so at that level, you know, the horses are pretty special animals that uh, have had years and years and years of training uh, the uniqueness about what we do with the horses is it, it does take years to train. And so you have a horse that, let's say, runs in the Kentucky Derby, like the thoroughbred horses, uh, they're three-year-olds. And, uh, you know, these horses, you know, there's horses that have won gold medals at Olympic Games that are 16 years of age. And so it takes a long time for the horse to get tough enough and seasoned and muscled enough for it, but also the training of it and the understanding of it to... Uh, to be able to get trained to do it. And so, like I said, they are a very special horse. And you, you kind of get this incredible partnership with your horse as well. And uh, certainly when you go through a, a major event together, there's this pretty cool bond that you've, you know, you've formed with the horse that, uh, you know, he's really, there comes a time on that cross-country course or, you know, whether it's in the dressage or the show jumping, when you're, you know, yes, the, the training has been there for years and years but there also comes a time when you really rely on your horse and uh, you know when you get through it all it's it's uh, pretty amazing 
So how long can the horse stay at that level? You know, how long is a, is a horse's competitive career? Well, I mean, you know, you can start competing a horse as a four-year-old. And like I said, that's really introdu- introductory level. Um, the, the youngest that you can compete a horse uh, internationally at that five-star level is an eight-year-old. And there's not many eight-year-olds that are actually at that level. So, you know, usually at that highest level, they're, they're pretty introductory at like eight, nine, ten. And then, you know, hopefully they will, their body will stand up to it and, you know, keep going until they're 15 and 16 years of age at that level. And then, you know, a horse can be pretty sound and serviceable and enjoyable to ride, you know, into their 20s. And so a lot of times those horses that have been at that level, they then enjoy, you know, a lot lower level and being able to go to the shows or what with a a more greener up-and-coming rider, and so they back down in level. So it's kind of a, you know, I think most people would say it's a good life for the horses as well. They kind of uh, are pampered and get really fit and trained and looked after really, really well. And in most cases, the horses certainly enjoy, uh, you know, everything that's a, that the sport's about. How can you tell if a horse is going to be a good eventer versus a horse that's good in just one of the disciplines? Well, I wish there was a, an easy answer for that, but, uh, you know, it's it's a lot of, you know, certainly experience you when you ride a, when you try a, a green horse, you have to picture, okay, what's this horse going feel like and be able to progress in four or five years' time. And it's certainly... It, that's one of the biggest issues that we're, you're up against. Certainly, it's not cheap to campaign a horse, and it's also it's a lot of time, one's time that goes into it as well. So, you know, if you're looking for a horse to go to, let's say, the next the Paris Olympics, which is the one after Tokyo, you know, you, you've got to you got to make a judgment. Okay, how's this horse going to progress, and um, what's the potential there? And so. You know, you're looking for a horse that's got a good attitude, that, uh, you know, likes to be worked and trained. And this is kind of horse talk, but like a horse that really thinks forward, that is not like backed off or cautious of everything. So a horse that sort of is brave enough to, you know, and you, these are just little stuff that you pick up when you first try the horse. And then obviously you're looking for a real athlete, the horse that does thing, does everything easily that's not a struggle for them. But, yeah, I mean... Some horses really progress after some training. Others, you know, start out really well and then don't progress. It's just the same. as It's a bit like, uh, I don't know, there's NFL scouts that look at uh, guys coming out of college or whatever. You know, it's a bit of a, a gamble. Sometimes the first-round picks work out well and then other times they don't, you know. And so uh, it, it's not easy to, to pick, but that's kind of what you're trying to do is to decide, you know, what that horse is going to be like in five years' time. So I would have the same question for the riders. How do you know, you know, what draws somebody to do eventing versus specializing? Well, certainly they're not doing it for the money. <laughs> I can promise you that it's, uh, it's a pretty niche niche sport. And uh, so, you know, I certainly got into this because I loved it. And, uh, you know, then you have to try to find a way to feed yourself and your family and make ends meet. But, uh you know, it's. I think the simple answer is that you've got to enjoy the process. You know, and the the, the day-to-day of 
working with the horses and improving the horses and teaching them and then working on your own riding as well. And um, so if you're enjoying that every day, then you, you know, and obviously you need to be a good competitor and be at your best when, when you're competing. But, uh, you know, there's a lot goes into being a good rider and, you know, you've got to enjoy the process and then be always looking ahead and planning ahead. So, like I said, the, the Olympics after this one, you know, you've got to be thinking, okay, where do I, you know, what horse is going to be ready in four years' time? And then you've got to be able to sell yourself as well because a lot of the riders can't afford to do it. And so they're looking for people who, you know, would enjoy the process as well uh, but not be the rider. So they would, you know, contribute money-wise to supporting that horse and then be a part of that horse when he got to the Olympics. And so, you know, certainly you need to have ability as a rider, but then you've got to be able to be able to put up with adversity and be able to stick at it and also find a way to, uh, you know, afford it. It's not a cheap sport. That's for sure. <laughs> it's a bit like, uh, you know, campaigning a, a, a yacht or a race car or something like that. You know, it takes a team of people to, to keep it on the keep the horse on the road and keep the horse competing and um, so uh, you know it, it's certainly not easy but uh, from my point of view it's very rewarding. So how did the delay of the games by a year affect you and the horses? Did they know something was up? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think they actually enjoyed it because we spent a bit more time at home and not on the road and uh, you know we've. You know, it's like anything in any sport, and I think you guys could probably attest to this in all sports. Like, if you just, if you don't improve, you're actually going backwards, you know, because every every day our competitors are getting better and the sport's getting more finely tuned. And so, you know, I think everybody's just tried to improve up their game a little bit with by being at home. And um, uh, obviously, competitions are back on the road, you know, back going again now, so... It's you know it's amazing how quick it's gone and now hopefully the, the Olympics will be happening happening and uh, you know we're we're still on track for it so everybody's uh, had a little bit more training a little bit more experience together and uh, hopefully it's not a bad thing because I immediately think of a horse going through um, pandemic and does it gain a little too much weight because everyone's around giving him snacks and then uh-huh. you've got to get him back into competitive shape like the rest of us have to. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I mean, you're always trying. There's always a balance of having your horse fit enough, but then making sure it doesn't get hurt. So certainly I think when the competition stopped, you know, we all backed off a little bit with the fitness work, but then tried to make up for it with dressage training and jump training. Um, and But uh, I think most horses, you know, if they go on vacation, they go out in the field and, pretty much forget about their rider but um, I didn't do that with mine I kept them in and um, we kept working away and so they certainly didn't quite do the same fitness program that would would have been on but they've picked up pretty quickly now and they're back on track and uh, started out the year well. Early on you mentioned that in between the cross country and the jumping phases there's a physical examination of the horse what are they looking for? Uh, they're looking for that the horse is came out of the cross country in good shape and that he's not uh, sore or lame from that uh, from that run. And obviously, there's very string, stringent uh, drug drug rules as well. That um, so you can't give your horse any anti-inflammatories or anything like that to help. So uh, you know, 
obviously the cross country is over you know most of the time about four miles and it's at galloping speed and so and it's you know different terrain up and down hills and that kind of stuff so you know there's an opportunity there for your horse to stretch his leg a little bit too much or you know overreach or you know there's all different stuff that can happen so that the organizers the part of the competition is that your horse has to pass that veterinary inspection um, and so it's just a case of uh, you have professional people there and uh, you trot your horse in hand up and back a laneway and um, and they just make sure that the horse is not you know if they're lame obviously they bob their head or don't move as freely and that's when that's what that's there for to to make sure the horses are physically okay to keep carrying on in the, the competition. Yeah, cross country seems like it's the demolition derby of, <laughs> because I mean, th- of course, you know, when I go to watch some of this t- in, in researching before, there's all these videos of like the worst falls and they're really mm-hmm. scary for both the horse and the rider. So you were talking about refusals before and I'm wondering how you get the horse not to refuse because it looks terrifying. Yeah, well, I think uh, probably you've, you know, in general, there's not that many falls, you know, if you had to put it in perspective and obviously through the YouTube or whatever, there's, uh, they probably m- might have highlighted them a little bit more than what happens. But, uh, you know, again, it's the horses, you gain your horse's trust and um, that is, you know, and there's obviously a process going by. It's not okay. You can't really force a horse to jump. Um it, it it just doesn't work that way. They're a 1,200 pound animal, and uh, you know, so you there's only so much forcing or pushing that that you can do. So you have to get the horse to understand the jumping and enjoy it, and um, give them the skill set to be able to come into the jumps and to to be able to handle it and to be able to jump with ease. And obviously, like any sport, stuff can go wrong, and where it doesn't doesn't work, especially when you're at speed like that. But uh, and, you know, the horse will let you know as well. You know, like I mentioned, they start out at a very introductory level and then work their way up the ladder. And at some stage, you know, the horse, just like any athlete will say, and now they don't say, obviously, but they their actions will let you know that, um, you know, that's they're at the maximum. That's about where they need to be. And so then you obviously you don't pro- progress any further. And that's, that's the level they're at, just the same as, you know, some athletes are, can get to a higher level than others, and um, and that's why once you get to the horse to Olympic Games or something, you know they're pretty special, special athlete to get there. Don't lie, we know the horse talks to you. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wish I could tell you I was a horse whisperer, but uh, <laughs> he talks to me in different ways, or well, they talk to me in different ways. Is there a difference between? the technique of jumping in cross country versus doing the show jumping. And I get, I get that cross country is at, at higher speed, but is there something different that the horse does or that you do to tell the horse to jump differently for the third event? Yes, there is. And that's a good question. Um, I mean, being at speed, obviously you're as a rider, you're a little bit more defensive in your position because gravity you know, basically, if you fall off, it's usually over the front. You know, not many people fall off backwards. And so it's usually from coming to a jump and then there's a sudden stopping or a, 
stumbling of the horse and so gravity's pushing you forward so in general your position is a little bit more what i call defensive so you you're sitting back a little bit more and preparing for just in case you know there is a sudden sudden abrupt stopping or you know decelerating whereas in the show jumping because you're going a fair bit slower and to stay in balance exactly with the horse and give him every opportunity so he doesn't touch a pole, you want to stay up over his wither as best you can. And so obviously the stiller that you can sit on the horse, the more it's just like somebody, if you had to carry somebody on your back, you know, if somebody's moving around, you're, you're not going to, you're not, it's going to be harder for you to tread or, or move exactly how you want. So in the show jumping, you know, especially as the jumps get up bigger, you want to be up over the horse's wither and just to stay nice and centred on the horse so that he has every opportunity to, to leave those jumps up. And so the cross-country position of the rider would be a little bit more back. And in the show jumping, you'd be a little bit more with the horse. Um, and then from the horse's point of view, it's not helpful for the horse to hang up in the air over the jumps. We want the horse to go across the jumps and... So you don't want the horse to go too high so across country, but obviously the show jumping, it is a good thing if they'll give the give the jump poles plenty of air. And so there's a you know everybody's got different techniques on how to get that to happen with with the horse, and every horse is a bit different as well. The other big question that I hear a lot from people is, I don't get well. It's not even a question. They'll just say, I just don't get dressage, and. That's something that I've tried to, to look, but, and when I've looked at videos, I see, I've seen bad dressage and I've seen good dressage and I understand that there's a difference, but I don't understand what makes a good dressage rider and horse good at that discipline. What, what are we looking for there? Well, you're looking for harmony. You're looking for, you know, it should be easy. It shouldn't be, you know, let's say that, question on the dressage test is to do a eight meter circle for example which is you know reasonably hard to do on a horse that's you know quite big and tall so you know what the judge is looking for is the horse to be exactly bent on that like if you had to look from the top with a camera above that the horse should be bent right around exactly on that eight meter circle and so that and the rider should be sitting in the middle and the horse and the rider should agree exactly on what they're doing. And, and so it, it is basically dressage is just a communication between the horse and rider and how it goes. And then you want the horse to use himself completely. So you don't want the horse going around with his back hollow and not swinging his back and not using himself and every muscle. Uh, well, you know, so it's, it's no different to being able to limber up and, get really soft and supple in the gym or with your yoga teacher or whatever. So, you know, obviously the judges are very experienced and they can see when the horse is not using his body completely well or, or the rider's not sitting in tune with the horse. And so it certainly, it's not the easiest thing to explain to a non-equestrian, but to tell you the truth, it is, you know, certainly growing up as a kid from a, farming background in Australia I was not that keen on dressage either but the more you do do it you realize how essential it is and how much the horse benefits from it because uh, like I said it, it is about the basics of using how the horse should use itself and and you, if you can get it right 
that then is over to the country and to the show jumping. And it's kind of over, over time, you know, your horse muscles well, the proper what you call a top line. And, you know, and it's no different to, uh, let's say, the analogy of somebody lifting, you know, some weight or a, you know, a table or a chair. And if you use your arch your back correctly, well, then you could probably last a bit longer and be able to if you're strong enough, you can still lift it the first time. But if you're not using your your body and your back correctly, eventually it's going to catch up to you. And that's kind of how it is with just trying to get yourself to use yourself correctly. You can get the absolute potential out of your horse. So you talked about the different mindset of the horse, but what about the different mindset for the rider for the three different pieces? Well, the dressage, you need to be... This is it's not something that you want to be aggressive at. This is, you know, you're trying to, you know, show off how easy it is and quiet and relaxed it is. Certainly the horse needs to be powerful and show power in his paces. Generally, your mindset is just to go in there and, you know, and that it, again, it's not the easiest thing to do if you're cantering down the center line and there's, you know, you're at the Olympic Games or there's 50,000 people in the stands. I mean, you've got to still be relaxed and calm and, and, put that across to your horse as well, keeping in mind that as a rider, you know, we're giving the horse, like literally every second you're giving the horse an aid um, as in what you're expecting him to do. And so you want that direction or that aid to be a calm aid, something that's just, you know, letting him know that just to be relaxed and to, to be chill. And then across country, obviously, you want your horse to be brave and trusting and really on the money and, um, you know, being able to react really quickly. So if I say turn left and accelerate, just as in your car, you want you to put your foot down and get a reaction, you know. And so that there you can be a bit more aggressive and a little bit more, you know, sharp and, um, you know, you can jazz yourself up with a couple of cups, cups of coffee to be really on edge, you know, and uh, so that you can – you know, every second counts, like you don't want to get a time fault. You, um, when you're galloping at speed, those jumps up come up quickly. Your reaction time needs to be sharp, and uh, so that is your horse, you know, and obviously that takes a different mindset. And then in the show jumping, it's a little bit of a between the two. Certainly you need to be, you want your horse sharp and careful and not wanting to hit the jumps, but it's not as aggressive and as fast country so there's somewhere kind of in between for the, for the show jumping phase for tokyo everyone was talking about the heat how do the horses are, are horses like people and each manage heat differently yes they do yeah so uh you know keep in mind that that you know the original horse developed in uh you know they were arabians and they would come from the desert so in general you know, horses are okay in heat. And, um, you know, obviously with Tokyo, the humidity is a different story. Um, but, yes, some horses, generally they're lighter, not as heavy horses are better in the heat, and which makes sense because they're not carrying as much body weight. Having said that, you know, you know horses vary, and there's been so much work done in the equestrian world on keeping horses cool. Um, and certainly that started actually in Atlanta, which is back in 1996, where it was very hot as well. And then we've had um, 
China Olympics, which were held in uh, Hong Kong for the equestrian, that was very hot. And so I think Tokyo is going to be the same. But, you know, generally they, like all other sports, they have a lot of cooling system in place and they try to have the events run around the coolest temperatures in the day. And, you know, there's a lot goes into making sure that it's a level one, a level playing field for everybody and that it's safe to to compete for horses and riders. So you mentioned 96. That was your Mm -hmm. first Olympics. Tokyo is going to be number seven, which is so amazing to be at this level for such a long period of time. So I'm wondering, obviously, your life has changed, your approach to the sport has changed, but what makes you better now than you were in 96? Uh, so let me just start by saying that it's certainly not a guarantee that I'm going to get to yes. the seventh Olympics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I've got I, I I to I I put in some – there's a lot can happen between now and then. But, uh, uh, well – Certainly with this sport, and that's what I'm, well, with most equestrian sports, experience plays a big part, you know, like, especially if you're smart enough to retain that experience and remember it. And, um, you know, understanding how horses think, understanding the training part of it, um, understanding the sport and what you've needed and sort of addressing your weaknesses and uh, working on that. Certainly you lose, as you get older, you lose a little bit of your lap athletic ability but you know hopefully you can make up for it with your experience and you know so I'm just through years and years and years of doing it and practice you know I'm a much better rider and horseman now than I was in 1996 and but the sport's improving all the time too and so is everybody and so is all the up-and-coming riders and you know it's such a different level of horses now as well and so you know, yes, I've improved, but then everybody else has as well. And so it's a, it's a, uh, you know, and that's why competition so exciting and so rewarding is that, uh, you know, to be able to keep improving. And it is, has been a very, I've been very fortunate to be involved in this sport that I can keep going at the, uh, and I'll just say it softly, at the age I'm at. But uh, I've been able to keep, keep at it and uh, keep trying to improve and do a better job every day. Now, are you working with the same horse from Rio? No, unfortunately, that, uh, that is Marty Nice, and he's uh, retired now. Um, I've got another, well, I've got a couple of up-and-coming horses that uh, hopefully will be in contention. The main one I have is, his name is Z, and uh, he's a horse that I've had at, this, at that five-star level now for a while. He actually represented America at the last World Championships, and so I'm excited about his chances and potential and um, we've got a good partnership together without it being you know quite as long as I have with Mighty Nice but you know so I'm excited for his chances and there's a couple others coming up as well. So what are the steps between now and Tokyo that you have to get through to make sure to qualify? Well I'm actually qualified um, so it, it, what it is now is just uh, convincing the U.S. selectors that I'm a I'm a better bet than the, everybody else. <laughs> so, That's a fun uh, so we have this big competition in um, Kentucky called the Land Rover Five Star, and that's in on the third week of April. So um, we'll front up there and try to put a good showing in there. And then I have another horse going to a four star in New Jersey 
you know, in mid-May. And so once those two events are over, then the selectors get together and uh, come up with their list of riders in order and uh, horses and riders in order. And then we then have, you know, this certain, you know, the horses have to be inspected by the team vets and then we have training sessions and camp and all that kind of stuff. And you've got to keep your horse galloping to be fit enough for the Olympics. And so there's so many things, you know, certainly you've got to get picked first, but then you've got to keep in training and then you've got to make sure your horse stays fit and ready and sound to, to be able to compete at the Olympics. So each week it's just kind of, you tick it off and say, okay, got through that week. Got through <laughs> this next week. And so it's a, there's a lot of what you might call hoops that you have to jump through before you actually can carry that American flag out there in the opening ceremony. So I, I've mentioned in other vid- interviews how fascinated I am with partnerships, where it's specifically, well, two, this is with a horse, but whether it's two, two athletes, we'll say. Mm-hmm. So are there times when you just get so mad at the horse? Like, how does, how does that function when, the ho- when you and the horse can't argue and, and hash things out and repair your relationship? Yeah, I mean, obviously the horse is, you know, they're not super intelligent animal they're the, about the kindest animal in the world and they want to please um so there's not much benefit and then again going back to experience there's not much benefit in getting angry like it just doesn't really work with the horse so you have to find a different way to get across to him and um so it's you know and certainly you know everybody loses their temper from time to time but it really doesn't all it does is uh, make the situation worse. And, uh, you know, so you don't want them to remember that. Uh, so you want to try to always find a way to make it so they're learning and it's a positive experience. And so, you know, that's part of being a good horseman is to, to be a good communicator to that horse in a way that he's going to understand. And so, you know, and over time, you know, the horse learns to trust you. And certainly I'm not saying that on a daily basis it's not, some disagreement but it's you know they're he's a my horses they're a lot bigger and stronger than me so I have to be the smarter one and find a way to to get them to understand what I'm talking about rather than sort of get angry and for you know force them or you know make it aggressive you know or be physical with them thank you so much Philip you can find Philip at philipdutton.com on Facebook he is Philip Dutton eventing and Instagram he is Dutton eventing so Philip has a quota spot for Tokyo 2020, but he still needs to go through the selection process to see if he will be going to his seventh Olympics. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And that was fun. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'm so and, and we keep coming back to this with this the, partnerships, these these when two athletes, in this case, a, a person and a horse have to work together so symbiotically Mm -hmm. and how that relationship works I find completely fascinating and then you throw in an animal and I'm done for I'm like I am so there right dogs horses Mm -hmm. gerbils Mm -hmm. I don't care I love them all hey did you know that you can now text us we are I love texting I know we're our our phone number is 208 flame it but for texting it's 208-352-6348 we would love to get some texts from you what you're thinking about the olympics random thoughts a bit emoji oh, 
that would be fantastic. So yes, give us a text 208-352-6348 and you know, we will respond. We'll be texting you back. That's going to be fun to have during Tokyo. Yes. Welcome to Shukflistan. It's time to check in with our team Keep the Flame Alive members who are past guests of our show and are now citizens of Shukflistan, our country. Water polo player Tony Acevedo is one of five members of the 2021 USA Water Polo Hall of Fame induction class and very well deserved. Oh, yeah, I know. I was totally not surprised when I saw that announcement. Like, oh, of course he is. He is fantastic. So congratulations. That's so exciting. Uh, in the last race of the season in biathlon at Ostersund, Sweden, Claire Egan finished 51st in the sprint and 41st in the pursuit. You know, I missed the pursuit race and it wasn't on replay, but I've got to rewatch this because everybody shot horribly. The wind was really, really bad. And uh, Claire missed four shots in the pursuit. And that was on the low side. You would think that right you would be going into a corner for four shots. But no, people were missing like nine and ten on this Oof. race. It was bad. But uh, she did not qualify for the mass start and so, thus ends her 2020-21 season. But she and teammate Susan Dunkley are the first athletes from the U.S. to qualify for Beijing 2022. Don't know if she's going to go yet. I'm hoping she sticks it out. Uh, yeah, I hope she sticks it out. Just one more year. One more year, Claire. Get the swag. Author David Davis wrote a piece for The Defector on the 50th anniversary release of the photography book Friday Night in the Coliseum about pro wrestling in Houston in 1971. And we will have a link to that in the show notes. And USA Bobsled and Skeleton was had team trials this uh, week. It's a, They had the Lake Placid edition of team trials for four-man bobsled. Josh Williamson was in uh, placed first with Hunter Church as the driver. And in the two-man bobsled, Hunter and Josh placed third. In the two-woman bobsled, Lauren Gibbs teamed with driver Nicole Voigt and placed third. All right, back to Tokyo 2020 news. I mean, you didn't think it could get worse with Uncle Yoshi, but apparently we have Uncle Hiroshi. It's... I think he's more cousin Hiroshi. <laughs> okay. But he is now the now former executive creative director for the Olympic and Paralympic ceremonies because he proposed that a Japanese comedian and plus size fashion icon named uh, Naomi Watanabe should dress up as a pig for a section of the Olympic opening ceremony and come down from the sky as the character Olympig. I can't. Like, what drunken fit did this come out of his mouth? I, I know. And, and how did it see the light of day? I mean, because the Kyoto News reported that uh, Watanabe felt, quote-unquote, extremely frustrated that the media said it was a serious proposal and she said she would have definitely rejected it because it was not interesting and she didn't understand the point. <laughs> Makes sense. But that also means that Hiroshi Sasaki resigned from his position as creative director. So now not only do we have a new leader in uh, Seiko Hashimoto of the entire of the organizing committee, but now 
with just a few months to go, we have to have a new creative director as well to finish up the ceremonies and get them rehearsed and performed. So we talked about uh, a few weeks ago that uh, Russia, as part of its deal with the Court of Arbitration for Sport, that it, it's going to compete under a neutral flag for Tokyo and Beijing. And they also need to, they, they're not allowed to use the Russian national anthem as the anthem for the podium. So they proposed a Soviet-era folk song as a replacement anthem, and the Court of Arbitration for Sport denied that request, according to reports from Grand Dunbar at the Associated Press. Team GB is going to set up a hotline to report bullying and abuse. This is according to the Japan Times. So British athletes competing at this year's games will be able to report concerns of physical or psychological abuse through an independent hotline service. It's a nice gesture to have, especially since Britain has been having trouble with its gymnastics program. Yes, I was going to say since British gymnastics is getting its um, tushy handed to it. Right. So shall we say and getting sued. So the least Team GB can do is set up a confidential hotline. I mean, that's kind of picking the easy fruit of the work that needs to get done. Right. Right. But at least it's a step in thinking in the right direction. Agreed. So today, as you're listening to this, it's a couple of, we're, we're taping on Tuesday, but on Thursday, when this episode drops, it's the start of the Torch Relay. Cannot believe we are here. So the Torch is scheduled to go through all of Japan's prefectures, and they're going to have a little grand start ceremony in Fukushima, which is the site of the catastrophic tsunami that hit uh, 10 years ago. But members of Japan's 2011 women's football team, who won the FIFA World Cup that year, will be the first ones to carry the torch. So that is very exciting. The starting ceremony and the first section of the relay will not be open to fans, says the Japan Times. And elsewhere, spectators will need to wear masks and be socially distant. And there's talk that the, if the course area becomes too crowded, that they'll halt the relay until they can disperse people out a bit. So hopefully we won't see any halts to the relay. Okay, I'm imagining them using the torch and swinging it around <laughs> to break up the crowds. Like those fire swingers? What do they call that? You know what I'm talking you know, about, sort right? Of like in, a, in an adventure movie where you use the torch to mm. ward off the snakes. <laughs> back, crowd, back, no cheering. Clap only, no singing. I wave my torch at you. But I'm just excited to see that beautiful torch in action finally getting what it was designed to do i know and i do i hope there's a, a fair amount of video or maybe they have a camera along with it so that people can watch it virtually which would be nice because i still am dying to see if what happens that we talked about a couple of weeks ago if sponsors have been smart enough to make noisemakers for this relay. i know that would be so smart we've got some news on the paralympic torch relay as well they're going to have a flame lighting event at uh, tsuki yamayuri n which is a care facility for people with mental disabilities in Sagamihara, which is near Tokyo. This is where, uh, in July 2016, one of Japan's worst mass killings took place, where a former employee of the facility killed 19 residents and injured another 26. So uh, 
Nobuyuki Hirota, who is the head of Sagi Mehara's Olympic and Paralympic promotion section, said he wanted to honor the victims and survivors of that massacre and make sure that this tragedy is not forgotten. That, I think, is very touching, and I, I, I appreciate that they're going to Emotional. honor. Yeah, exactly. So the Paralympic torch relay starts on August 12th. Not that far away. I know. So, hey, on the same day that we got the news that no overseas fans could go to Tokyo, we got accredited to go to the Paralympics in Beijing. So, no Tokyo, lots of Beijing. Lots of Beijing. So, we've got two credentials. We'll have two people on the ground there. And, uh, yeah, I'm excited to be able to cover the Paralympics as well. Omega, the official timekeeper of the Olympics since 1932, has launched a commemorative Seamaster Diver 300-meter Beijing 2022 Special Edition watch to mark next year's games. Which That's going to be the 30th games that Omega has been the official timekeeper. So, of course, it's a very elegant watch with very subtle Olympic touches. It will cost uh, $6,150 or... uh, 4,400 no. pounds and uh, 5,200 euro, and it should be out next month. And then interesting development on the Uyghur front. As you've heard on the show, many, many individuals and bodies have been uh, calling out to boycott the Olympics because of the human rights abuses of the Uyghur Muslims in China. The European Union and the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom have now sanctioned Chinese officials over alleged human rights abuses of the Uyghur Muslim population in Xinjiang with less than a year to go. Inside the Games reports that these sanctions were put on both individuals and some entities, and they will be subject to travel bans and their assets will be seized. So this is the first time the EU has imposed sanctions on China over human rights abuses since the 1989 Tiananmen Square crackdown. Wow. Yeah, I mean, everybody involved wants to avoid any kind of boycott. Mm -hmm. So we may see some movement elsewhere on this issue, which would be amazing. So just the, the threat of the boycott actually may be more effective than any boycott. It's, I mean, we know in the past boycotts have done nothing, but maybe threatening the boycott is really what is going to drive the bus, which upsets me a lot that are we going to see threats of boycotts now for everything? But if it moves the bus a little bit on this issue, I, I, <laughs> I can more than live with that. Yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, there were calls for boycotting Pyeongchang for uh, the North Korean situation. But as but for Sochi yes, over all oh, kinds of issues in Russia. Right. So we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, we've heard T-Box say over and over, you know, like the IOC is not a government organization. We really have no power over the government. And I think it's just an easy target because they decided to put their games in a country that a lot of people have issues with. So we'll we'll uh, see how this goes, and maybe that 
moving on the bus actually causes some kind of change without affecting the games. You got anything else? I got nothing else. All right. We got to process. We got a lot to process. The no going, no fans, but then now we're going to a games. So. And we're not there. We're not mentally there yet. We keep talking about how soon Beijing is, but it, it just feels like another lifetime away. Right. And now that we have to do more to prepare for it, it's going to be go by so much quicker than we ever imagined. I know. So I think we so should... many more things for me to avoid doing. <laughs> well, I think we should get to getting on that, those preparations, and we'll call it a show for this week. Let us know what you think about equestrian sports. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com or you can call or text us at 208 352 6348 that's 208 flame it we're flame alive pod on twitter and insta and keep the flame alive podcast group on facebook join us next week for more olympic stories and as we go out to music by archdale thank you so much for listening and until next time keep the flame alive I'm done for. I'm like, I am so there.